the most interesting uh, research I did was uh, in the British Library, was reading the handwritten memoir and confession by Anthony Blunt, which was extraordinary. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Gareth Rubin is an author and journalist, and today we're talking to him about his latest novel, Liberation Square, set in a Soviet-occupied UK in the 1950s. Thanks to our select band of supporters who are helping us financially for the price of a cup of coffee a month to cover our increasing costs and keep us on the air. They're also the proud owners of a Cold War Conversations coaster. Don't you want one too? Just go to patreon.com slash coldwarpod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash coldwarpod. So back to Gareth's novel. After a disastrous failure of D-Day, Britain is occupied by Nazi Germany and only rescued by Soviet soldiers arriving from the east and Americans from the west. The two superpowers divide the nation between them, a wall running through London like a scar. Now, if you listen to the end of this podcast, there's a chance to win one of three copies of Liberation Square delivered to your door anywhere in the world. So listen through to the end. We welcome Gareth Rubin to our Cold War conversation. Very aptly, we are in Highgate Cemetery in London, in front of Karl Marx's grave. As uh, handily, Gareth lives not too far away, so we thought it would make the ideal Cold War Conversations location. Welcome to Cold War Conversations, Gareth. Thanks very much. So, Karl Marx... It's interesting to live by him and occasionally to see people who are actually visiting his grave, which I like to, you know, see from time to time, see how he's getting on. Um, and I, I suppose he, he's one of those figures who um, who's never going to be out of fashion, in a sense. He's maybe not as fashionable as in the 1970s or 1920s or the 1890s even, but uh, we, we I, I don't think we're going to see him forgotten uh, you know, hidden under the sands of time uh, any time in the next couple of centuries. He's going to keep on inspiring new generations and uh, new sections of society for, you know, for probably for as long as there are people on this planet. Yeah, no, sure, absolutely. So what could you tell us about Liberation Square, your latest novel, without giving too much away? Well, it's uh, set in 1952 in... Um, in the London, which is divided down the middle by a great big wall. Uh, and yes, that is directly taken from Berlin, of course. Um, although the, I've, I've telescoped the, the time scale of the, uh, the division of Berlin and the, the building of the wall. Um, so Britain, uh, is, has been, uh, invaded successfully by the Nazis after the failure of D-Day. After that, uh, the Soviets who stayed out of the war then swept through, uh, Poland and Germany. Um, stabbing Germany um, in the back with uh, 12, min- 12 million fresh troops and swept right into Britain uh, and started creeping up through Britain. They, they, they took it uh, slower than they should, 
and the uh, Americans arrive like cavalry over the hill uh, in the north of England. And Britain is therefore, in my world, divided in two with um, London, with the south of England under Soviet or, well, uh, a Soviet stooge state, um, puppet state, uh, with London as Berlin was, as a, a little oasis um, in the middle of the um, the communist zone um, and London itself is divided into with um, the north west sector belonging to the sort of democratic north of of United Kingdom with a, a road going up from London into the, the the northern part of Britain the free part so that's that's the background um, and then uh, in overlaid on top of that is essentially a murder mystery which um, in which my main uh, character Jane has to investigate the uh, horrendous and shocking death um, uh, giving the game away slightly of her husband's ex-wife um, which is linked into the political corruption um, which is inherent within kind of most Marxist regimes um, and um, and rears its ugly head in the British Marxist regime as well and I, l- I love the way that you'd used real history to place political figures within that regime so um various members of the cambridge five Mm. are significant political figures they are um the first secretary is uh blunt himself um and um dotted around you have um uh kim philby burgess um i i real aficionados will notice that donald mclean is is um never mentioned because uh, for uh, slightly suspicious reasons, he has somehow been sort of airbrushed from history, um, though all the others kind of pop up um, in one ga- uh, guise or another. As does uh, Karen Cross, um, who um, obviously people who know a lot about the Cold War and Cold War spying will be aware of, although the average member of British, you know, British population doesn't know him as well. Um, and also, um, Wynne, um, who is, the, who was leader of the Oxford Spy Ring, who, um, of course, um, not nowhere near as well known as the Cambridge Ring, but were operative. They were operational, um, fed some, um, information to the, to the Soviets, um, but were just not as successful. Sorry, that was the, the Oxford Ring. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, who, um, I don't know. I, they, they've largely been overlooked because they simply weren't as successful. Um, but they were direct parallels to their their Cambridge counterparts. Yeah, no, it's an interesting one because you, you you know it's a question that I I have, have asked is that if it, they were so successful in Cambridge, why didn't they recruit in Oxford? And obviously they did, they but did. they just didn't get the successes. No, the the um they, they were recruited in exactly the same way by exactly the same people, uh, in fact, um, and operated in the same way, but. Just, I guess, through luck, the the, the Oxford um, the Oxford spies just weren't as well placed as the Cambridge spies. It's partly, um, of course, the Cambridge spies all um, helped each other, egg, egged each other on a bit, and perhaps the Oxford spies just weren't as successful as interacting in in that way. No, really interesting, really interesting. So, how did you arrive at the idea for the book? Well, uh, I I wrote an article recently for the Observer, which is about how a lot of alt histories are occurring at the moment, popping up, uh, partly inspired by the um, uh, sudden um, increase in, uh, by the sudden inversion in the sociopolitical order we're seeing in Western uh, Europe and in the US at the moment. Um, I was partly inspired by um, the rise of Corbyn to the leadership of the Labour Party. 
Um, the Brexit vote happened uh, while I was writing the book, and uh, as did the um, election of Donald Trump. Um, but the the election, the, the the rise of Corbyn, just made me wonder, made me think about how Marxism has is still kind of ingrained within a stratum of British society. How it, you know, we, for many years we were really very close to um, um, uh, people with with strongly communist ideas um, entering Parliament gaining footholds even within the cabinet um and of course there have been some communist mps um over the years not very many but you know a spattering of them um and there are still people like jeremy corbyn who um admire marx and uh and given his way would probably bring in some sort of uh, uh marxist command economy um however successful that would be you know that's uh, very questionable yeah Let's not get too far onto the contemporary politics. <laughs> um, and the, the the timeline I found interesting about the the D Day defeat and the Soviets uh, coming, you know, through through Poland. How did you sort of arrive at that? Well, I had to find a way for the uh, the Soviets to defeat uh, Nazi Germany uh, um, in a fairly clean sort of way. I mean, I could have. I could have come up with a very complex um, uh, history, military history of the latter parts of the war, um, um, post Kursk, um, uh, maybe you know, just or or maybe from the 1950s, just the, the Soviets gaining more and more military, economic power, and slowly kind of rolling through through Europe that way. But really, I wanted something fairly clean, to be honest. Uh, that could have been. I toyed with the ideas of the Soviets, you know, creating a nuclear bomb in the in the 1940s, which is not out of the question, um, and defeating Nazi Germany and the, the Western powers that way. Um, probably, if the you know if the Soviets had created the bomb 18 months before the Americans, then yeah, maybe they, that that, that the, the the Russians would have won the Cold War straight off before it had even begun. Um, but uh, I preferred something which is more plausible. Um, more, um, which n- which necessitated less fictionalizing. Um, so I, I just posited the idea of the Soviets having stayed out of the war from the very beginning, uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, pact having having stayed. Um, the Germans then and the the uh, Western Allies having beaten each other to a standstill. The, the Soviets having eventually uh, crept ac- across the, the channel. Sorry, the, the the Nazis having eventually crept across the Channel, uh, eventually having just about won the war, and then the Soviets with their fresh troops, with their million odd tanks and their massive uh, military might, then just beating down the the the, the overstretched uh, German lines, uh, which is seems to be fairly clean and really quite plausible. Yeah, um, it sounds like you've you've got quite a detailed knowledge of the Cold cold war history did that help you a lot with the book well uh certainly i I obviously researched it to an extent probably the most interesting research i did was into the the lifestyles of the people living behind the iron curtain in east germany east berlin 
um and uh because when we are at when we're at school uh or university you learn mostly about the the the, the higher level of of affairs you 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 learn about the cuban missile crisis and you learn about the wall and you learn about the the big armies facing each other across across the the the, the checkpoint charlie and across the iron curtain i was uh, because i was writing a book primarily about people living under um a marxist regime that that's the research i had to do so um so i i watched kind of documentaries and i watched um and i read, read books about people about memoirs about people who lived in that state both uh westerners who had gone to live in east germany but also from people who'd grown up in that you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, under that system. And um, it's, of course, it's not very long ago that that it existed. It existed in um, the lifetimes of most people who are going to be listening to this podcast, uh, existing in my lifetime. And um, I spoke, I remember speaking to a friend of mine whose mother grew up in, in, uh, East Germany and, uh, at one point attempted to escape across the wall when she was 16. And when she was 16, she was, she was caught and she was thrown into, uh, prison and she spent, uh, six months in, in prison because of that. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's in many ways kind of extraordinary to, to those of us who have grown up in the West, um, and meet no have german friends and to think that many of them grew up in under that system or or their parents grew up under that system we're we're in a in an era where you know, the last survivors of the holocaust are, are are you know nearing the end of their days and that seems um quite far away um the holocaust and the end of the end of the end of the war but the the fall of the berlin wall really is not very long ago at all yeah and that, that's one of the reasons why I do the podcast is to try and capture some of these witness stories before they're lost. And there's a lot out there that are really interesting that have that have never been published. Mm. Um, I I was interested in how you mixed sort of contemporary, well, sort of 1950s British history with that whole Marxist regime because you had. I was pleased to see you had the Teddy Boys involved in there. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, that's actually one of my favourite parts of the book: the the, uh, the interaction uh, between uh, some nineteen fifties British style and society, and um, on what that would mean living under a uh, sort of Marxist authoritarian regime. So yes, I, I like to kind of imagine the, these um, these kind of rebellious youths from the early nineteen fifties living in a, a, a totalitarian dictatorship uh where thought and action uh is suppressed and oppressed and confined and people are put in boxes very much whereas um in the 1950s we in in reality was was an era when people can really breaking loose from uh quite a staid history and society in britain and that that's the era that rock and roll started it's the era when um uh, yes yeah, sort of, uh, gang culture sort of youth gang culture started um of course, you know it, it existed uh, in in the twenties and thirties, but to a much less prominent extent. This this was an era when nice middle class boys and girls started getting involved in um, in rebellious dances and music and clothes fashion. 
um and i thought it was fun to kind of interact that with it, it was it was again it, it was one of my favorite bits actually that that it was sort of unexpected because i've obviously read a lot of east german histories and and things like that and although there was an aspect of of youth rebelliousness that that very uk youth rebelliousness because i think the teddy boys was a very uk phenomenon yes i think so um there were um a, a little bits of taking style from from french um rebellious youth and also american rebellious youths but um yes the, the kind of fashion they're called course called teddy boys because they, they it was they were rediscovering edwardian styles edwardian fashion which they were using in a slightly ironic sort of way um but the sort of the swagger which they had was taken uh partly yeah from french and, and american youths um one of the things um just kind of slightly uh, skip ahead I, i'm my new book is uh my forthcoming book is set it's not an old history it's set in paris just before d-day and uh they had uh under the nazi dictatorship then the the nazi puppet regime they, they had then uh they they had equivalently had kind of parallels um of youths who were into swing dance and they they also wore um slightly sort of outsized suits and they showed their kind of rebelliousness against the the fascist nazi regime they were living under in that way through music and fashion as well so it's one way that young people have always um shown their individualism so i was interested to understand how how you write your books so do you have a clear idea of the plot before you start i don't i'm very bad at that um some authors um, write out um, painstakingly every plot point, virtually page for page. I'm very bad at that. Whenever I've tried really planning a plot, I've just halfway through gone off completely as a tangent, and in fact, not even halfway through, <laughs> tenths of the way through, and I've just abandoned basically all, all the notes that I've made. Um, so it's been a bit bit pointless. So what I do now is generally I just have a starting point. I have I start generally with a, an image in my mind, um, and then just kind of go on from there i have i have vague plot points in my mind but they're so vague i don't bother writing them down even these days right sound like the most efficient way of working <laughs> it's really not it, it, it's terribly inefficient uh but it's the only way i can do it okay well it, it certainly worked with this one anyway uh, the other thing that i did find interesting was jane mm. because you you write the book from a female point of view why, why did you choose that angle well i was interested in um a character who um grows in strength hugely throughout the book as you mentioned it's set in the 1950s and there's this um curious interaction between 1950s british sensibilities and um sort of soviet marxist ideals of course under the under the soviets the role of women uh there's quite a lot of uh, female em emancipation and the role of women was uh, centralized and celebrated and they were um, seen as uh stronger individuals uh than than in some previous eras obviously under the czarists and uh, it was a very different situation um and in britain we there was also the, the great kind of emancipation of women uh, after the after each war really and so um i wanted to show an individual who was growing in her place or uh within the society as well as within you know the the plot and the story of the book and so a female character and J jane starts off 
um, a little bit under the thumb of her husband, partly because he's just so charismatic, partly because it's 1952 and you know men were still largely in charge. Um, but then it, suddenly it's on her to clear his name from um, a murder charge, um, which, of course, in those days would have meant uh, execution. Um, and so she has to um, find her feet and uh, both, you know, within the story and within society. And she becomes uh, a much stronger uh, individual. And uh, I think she's I hope she's kind of interesting for that. Yeah, no, I think I think she is. And I think it's it, it, it makes a a change from some of the some of the novels I, I've read anyway, by, by coming from from that from that angle. I was going to ask you. How did you do your research into the early Cold War? Is there any other insight you can give me? Did you go to archives or anything like that? The most interesting uh, research I did was uh, in the British Library, was reading the handwritten memoir and confession by Anthony Blunt, which was extraordinary. Um, it's um, when he died, uh, he left it in the in the care of a friend of his who gave it to the British Library on the proviso that it be kept secret for 25 years until 25 years after uh, Blunt had popped it, uh, which and that 25 years was up a few years ago, uh, at which point the, the, the British Library revealed it had this extraordinary written confession. Um, so I went along, I applied to read it. Uh, two hours later, it was brought out to me um, in this great sort of packet uh which I, and i sat there with it on a a foam reader um which is designed to stop uh, any kind of damage just turning over the pages with with my own hands it was extraordinary to read wow that must have been quite mm. quite some experience with something that is such a an amazing historical document mm, it is it's interesting to read um it's interesting to read partly because it's i think it's fairly self-delusional um that he blames um his uh, treachery, if you want to see it that way, um, and I'm, I'm personally, I'm willing to take both sides on that. I think that that um, the Cambridge Five were doing what they believed was right. Um, it's um, entirely possible that um, the um, some of the information they fed to the Soviets during the war um, from Bletchley Park, etc., quite possibly hastened the end of the Second World War. Um, certainly can strengthen the, the Soviets, um, the, the Soviet armies um, in their battles against the, the, the Germans, which I think most of us would recognize is what largely led to the end of the Second World War, at least when it happened. Um, so you could well say they're perfectly justified in, in helping the Soviets to get um, behind the backs of the fairly paranoid British uh, government at the time what they did after the war is more controversial you know w whether or not they did lead to the um the deaths of of western agents yeah it's it's uh whether or not they they were justified in any way in keeping the the two uh, superpowers um in a standoff rather than one attacking the other well possibly but um essentially anthony blunt at the end of his life was uh, a fairly broken man um, who um, was not apologetic for what he did. He in instead just tried to blame the others in the in the uh, in the Cambridge Ring, saying essentially it was all their fault. They got me into it. I didn't know what I was doing. Gov. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think <laughs> I think you're right about the ideological side mm. side of it. Is is that they did genuinely believe that they were doing good mm. for sure. the world in 
in their view, absolutely, but and then wouldn't change from that position even when you know the the actual realities of you know the Ukrainian famine and you know all, all the other yeah um excesses of of stalin um became public knowledge yes absolutely it's when um the facts changed and their opinions didn't is uh when you you really can start condemning them for for what they did um yeah i, I think that that there is little justification once you know what stalinism is all about in supporting to in any way yeah um you you mentioned the friend of yours whose mother had tried to escape from East Germany. Were there any other uh, people who'd lived through the Cold War who you spoke to directly to try and get some more insight? Well, I read the memoir of a British journalist called Peter Miller, who was the Sunday Times correspondent in East Berlin during that period, which is quite a fascinating document um, describing uh, how um, not only how, how he went about his job, but the the surveillance he was under, um, how the um, the the Stasi attempted to entrap him in a honey trap. That as soon as he arrived in East Berlin, he was given a housekeeper who was a sort of young, attractive uh, woman who was clearly sort of available to him, um, but uh, would have been reporting back on anything he said in his sleep, etc. Um, yeah, the um, it's 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 almost comical these days to see the methodologies. Um, that that the the Stasi and the you know it, it, their sister services used that um, they're, it's so blunt and in many ways really quite paranoid that the um, the East Germans were sure that Miller was um, an MI6 asset which well he claimed he wasn't and <laughs> I'm inclined to believe him um, but uh, they were just certain that he was because they believed that all Westerners in within the the Soviet bloc and the Soviet sphere of influence were uh, working for. British authorities. Yeah, we. I did an interview with uh, Peter Miller a while back, and it was it was really interesting hearing about that honey trap story um, uh, as well. But but also the um, you know the surveillance they were under, and you know reading his file afterwards, and they were trailing his wife to the shops and all all, all sorts of um, uh, surveillance. So, um, what would you say was the most surprising thing you discovered in your research? Well, um, I, as I mentioned, you know, um, most of us learn a bit about, um, the Soviet era, um, Soviet bloc at school. One thing that, w- which has always stayed with me, um, during my research is, and it's probably well known to a lot of people who, who listen to this podcast, the, the, um, all these delivery vans in East Berlin, which were kind of rolling around the city, which seemed to be kind of delivering groceries and, and milk, but we really had miniature cells in the back of the van, which, um, unfortunate, unfortunates were bundled into, uh, before being taken off for, for questioning. Um, if I'd ever known about that, I'd forgotten about it. And it, it really kind of brought home to me that, um, how there is something hiding in plain sight mm. in East Berlin and, uh, in East Germany. Um, that these innocuous looking vans, which, you know, you, you look around any British city or any Western city and you see them all the time and you don't know what's in the back of them. You mm. presume that it's something completely, completely innocent and innocuous. But in East Berlin, it was anything but. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Presumably you've got an elevator pitch for the book. <laughs> well, if it, just a couple of sentences as to why people should buy Liberation Square. 
Uh, well, it's the elevator, which is always that it's a, um, a thriller set in Soviet-occupied London. And usually uh, that's enough to make people just kind of open their eyes and think, gosh, yeah, that's interesting. I've either I live in London or I've been to London or I've planned uh, to visit London if, it's, if they're from some other part of the country. Because everyone can walks along the streets of London and thinks feels they're familiar. Whereas suddenly if you say that to them, they, su- uh, they suddenly picture the wall um, down the middle of London, or in uh, in the in the case of my book, it's Checkpoint Charlie is at uh, Piccadilly Circus, and uh, poor old Eros is is kind of hemmed in by the wall. So uh, I just can say, well, if you just picture a massive concrete wall running along the side of your house, cutting you off from your neighbours, from your friends, how does that feel? Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yeah. No, absolutely. I've always thought that with with Berlin and and London is, is... you know, just trying to get people's heads around that whole division and the the fact that it was a city cut in half on the basis of ideology mm. is is just a fascinating subject. And I think of all the Eastern Bloc countries of the Cold War, East Germany is the one that generates the most amount of fascination. It is because because of the division uh, when you have Russia, you know, a thousand odd miles away from from. Uh, from Britain, it feels quite remote and it feels like we're not really in conflict with them or it felt like, or it didn't feel like that so much, but where you are 20 metres away from someone you went to school with, from in some cases from your, your girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or mother or son, how extraordinary must that be that you can't see them? You, you, if you shouted really loudly, they could just about hear you, but you can't physically see them. Um, although uh, there is this, this funny thing that, that in uh, in West Berlin, they had this big viewing platform beside the wall where people could climb up and look down into into East into East Berlin and physically see, you know, th- their friends or or, the, or members of their family could wave to them, perhaps. Um, and I, I I wonder a little bit about that. How, how how kind of voyeuristic it must have been to go up on that platform and look down on people who are just much less fortunate than you are. Mm. There's this. Um, in the medieval era, there was, um, within uh, Catholic circles, within Catholic thought, there was uh, the idea that one of the pleasures of heaven would be looking down at the souls in hell, burning in hell, that you'd, you'd actually enjoy watching everybody else burn um, because you just feel quite smug about it. And I, I often have that at the back of my mind when I think about these people going up onto the platform um, in West Berlin and looking down on their less fortunate cousins. Um, I, I, I imagine very few of them felt smug about it. Most of them probably felt just very distressed about it. But I, I often have that at the back of my mind. Yeah, no, that, that's that's really interesting. Um, 
So with uh, authors I interview, I normally have a few fun questions at the end. You might not think them fun, (laughs) but anyway, we'll give them a go. But um, if you were a filmmaker uh, making a film of Liberation Square, who would you cast in the main roles? I, I've wondered about that once or twice when um, I've actually been having meetings about about possible adaptation of the book. Um, I'm a little bit kind of lost for um, uh, for who Jane, my, my female lead, would be. Uh, she's thirty. Um, um, she's uh, she has to go through quite a range of roles. So she starts off fairly weak and ends up very dangerous <laughs> frankly she she ends up very ballsy um and so it has to be somebody with a, a good kind of range of of um strength to her when whenever i think about the uh, her husband nick i uh, often actually uh, i think about Lawrence olivier because uh, many people compare my book to uh, daphne de Maurier's rebecca um and uh, in that uh jane is a character rather like the unnamed narrator of of rebecca um and uh in rebecca of course um the, the narrator's new husband's ex-wife ends up dead or she well she's dead from, from the beginning um and um so within so i think of the, the film rebecca which starred uh Lawrence Olivier as 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 De Winter, the equivalent. He's this brooding, slightly dangerous, very difficult to know character. And I think that's what the way I suddenly try to create Nick, um, that you never really know what he's done, why he's done it, whether he's on the side of the angels or the devils, um, that he's, he's very ambiguous. And that's very much what I like about him. Whereas with the Jane character, she goes on the journey. You always know what she's about. You know what she's like. It changes very much throughout the book, but you do know her very well. Whereas with this Nick character, I like having him this slightly ambiguous character that, that Olivier plays so well. Right. Okay. That's good. That's good. And uh, what piece of music would you have in mind for the soundtrack? Oh, gosh. That's a very difficult one. Um, I didn't a, say they were going to be easy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> certainly true. I remember watching Michael Palin on TV many years ago on one of his travelogues when he where he went to Russia. It must have been yeah, it was after the fall of of the wall, and he uh, encounters the Russian Navy choir singing um, their anthem. It was the Russian Navy anthem, um, but I remember that there was this incredibly kind of. A booming, rumbling presence of a song, which yeah. sounded to me like a submarine slipping yeah. through the water. Yeah, I don't know. Have you ever seen Hunt for Red October? I have, yes. I mean, that music oh, yes. I always find is really mm. strong because although it's a made up song, yeah. it has that great mm. Soviet Cold War effect. That's right, with Sean Connery doing his famous Russian accent, which happens to be exactly the same as his, yeah. his Irish accent. I think, yeah, accent. I think Russian accent is a generous <laughs> description, to be honest. Yes. Um, okay, no, that that's great. So if you could invite three personalities from the Cold War period to have a few pints with, who would they be? Well, the thing is that for that question, that the immediate thought is 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 the one that swings the minds of the monsters. You think of Stalin and Beria, um, but of course, you know these are not people you actually want to be in the same room as. I'd, I'd be delighted to kind of know something about them to see them, you know, held behind glass or, or iron bars. But I wouldn't want to go to local pub with them. Um, 
I think Churchill is is a very interesting figure, and, and of course he is uh, kind of more connected to the Cold War than than uh, we generally associate him with. We associate him with the very hot war of, of a few years earlier. But um, he was a very interesting figure during that era. Great um, campaigner uh, um, against. Um, uh, 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 so another breakout of hot war, which would have, which would have included uh, nuclear weapons, which you know would have really devastated the world beyond compare. Um, I think also I'm going to, I'm going to go slightly off piece. I'm going to cheat a little bit here. Uh, I'd be fascinated to meet uh, Sidney Riley, uh, Ace of Spies, um, who although it wasn't it wasn't technically Cold War, who was very much involved in the war um, the the espionage war between the West and, and Soviet Russia in the early period. Um, he was executed, of course, by the, by the Soviets in 25, as I remember. Um, but um, for those who, who don't know, um, Sidney Riley, born uh, Sigmund Rosenfeld, as I remember, uh, in Russia or Odessa. It's, it's difficult to know because he kept changing the story. Uh, he changed about 10 different times. Um, was uh, Sidney Riley was one of the uh, models, possibly the, the most important model for James Bond. He was an extraordinary man. Um, he was uh, essentially a freelance spy for um, 30 odd years. Uh, worked primarily for Britain, but also for lots of other great powers um, in the from the, around the turn of the 20th century. Um, up until he was executed by the, the Soviets. Yeah, I only really know of him from that Sam Neill TV series, but he certainly sounds like a colourful character. So the other two? Uh, well, I'm going to go with Churchill. Uh, who else? I think that I think I would probably then pick as a third option somebody who no one's ever heard of, including me. I think somebody who just lived behind the Iron Curtain, lived in Berlin during that period, who can tell me about you know the daily life and daily struggles, mm. because we learn so much about the intergovernmental uh, plays. Uh, we don't really hear so much about what it's like to not have enough food on the table for your family in the mornings. Mm. Uh, so was that three? That makes that was your three. Yeah, sorry, I'd lost count. <laughs> we went Churchill into so Riley. much detail with uh, with Sydney Riley. Uh, yeah. I lost. Well, he's count. a fascinating man. Yeah, and do you have any idea what? Well, you mentioned some of the questions you'd ask them, but mm. I mean, say Churchill. What what would you be asking him that you feel we don't necessarily know? Gosh, um, I think that that when when you're interviewing people as research, I think usually the, the most fascinating question is, what have you never told anyone? What have you never um, revealed about yourself or what? you're involved with what is the most shocking thing that 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 you were told by one of your by one of your intelligence operatives yeah. almost the same questions i ask you <laughs> yes a little bit <laughs> so where can people find you online if they want to uh, converse well i'm on twitter as gareth rubin uh, that's g-a-r-e-t-h-r-u-b-i-n um, I also have a website, um, just garethrubin.com. You can keep up with uh, what books I'm publishing. And I still work as a journalist. You can keep up with uh, what articles I'm writing, some about my book, some about just more general social affairs. Great. Well, I will be providing links to those accounts and Gareth's website in the show notes. Gareth, thank you very much thank for you. coming on Cold War Conversations. It's been really interesting. It has indeed. Well, that's it for today's episode. However, there's photos of us at Karl Marx's grave and links to the book in the show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode 
and the number 66. Don't forget, you can support us and get a Cold War Conversations coaster at patreon.com slash coldwarpod. And if you like what you're hearing in the podcast, you can also help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or with your favorite podcast provider. It really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, then do visit our vibrant Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you are continuing the Cold War conversation. Just search Cold War Conversations on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram at Cold War Conversations. So it's freebie time and a lucky listener will win a copy of Liberation Square. Just join our mailing list at coldwarconversations.com and email me at ian at coldwarpod.com with the email title Liberation Square and you will go into the draw that will be made at the end of June. I will email the winner directly for delivery details. Good luck to everybody who enters. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.